Okay, got ourselves another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. Pleased to be joined by Michael Clifford from awesomeo.com and dauberhockey.com. Cliffy, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Uh, you know, just sitting here kind of waiting for game six of the World Series to come about. Um, that's been a great series to watch. And uh, it's, you know, kind of keeping my playoff sports fix going until we can get anywhere as close to, to the NFL playoffs here in a couple months. I'm completely out on baseball. You, there's nothing you can do to get me interested in it again, unless I guess maybe if the Jays get good again. But um, baseball playoffs is phenomenal. It's this, it's this weird because there are actual stakes. Then suddenly the tension of the game and the gap between every pitch becomes like it becomes meaningful again, and and all that tension builds and it becomes this fantastic viewing experience. Whereas the drudgery of the regular season just kills me I like I, I can't get into it but what have you learned from this baseball season that we can take forward into the next hockey season because it seems like they're going to try to model it somewhat based on what baseball did yeah it'll be interesting to see what the NHL does because um, you know I think we can pretty safely say the players won't go into a, a rock solid bubble um, like they did for the playoffs, they're not going to do that for an entire regular season. So they're going to have to figure out some sort of hybrid bubble, like, you know, like you said, like baseball did where um, players are, you know, they can only go to the, the stadium or their house or the grocery store and then that's it. Um, they have to take private limos or private jets or private cars or whatever. Um, the thing is, is the NHL doesn't have the pockets that the other sports do, right? Um now, whether you want to talk about uh, billionaire owners not shelling out, you know, $30 million for, you know, safe transportation and lodgings and all that for a season, you know, we can have that debate at another point. Um, but I think the one thing that um, the NHL is definitely going to take away from MLB is, I, sh I shouldn't say definitely going to take away because I, I, the NHL definitely won't do anything that they probably should, but what worries me a lot is the lag in in for COVID in the incubation period, right? Like if if an if an NHL player were to be exposed to somebody on a Friday, just because they're not symptomatic or just because they don't pop positive on Sunday, doesn't mean they won't on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. And if I'm not mistaken, that was a problem, a big problem with the Miami Marlins um, early in the season, was they were testing players and they were coming back negative and they're sending them out to play, but they were actually carrying the virus because it had, you know, the incubation period still hadn't passed. So the one thing that I hope the NHL kind of takes from it is that, you know, just because, you know, if somebody comes into contact with, with a COVID infected person on a Friday, doesn't mean, you know, if they pop negative on a Sunday or a Monday or even Tuesday, that they'll, that they aren't carrying the virus. Like, and I'm wondering how that's going to work with NHL teams. Cause you know, you can't say, Hey, Nikita Kucherov came and came into contact with somebody that had COVID. He has to sit out a week. Like, I don't think teams are going to go for that. So I'm wondering what kind of what the compromise is going to be here, or e even if it's a factor for them, but I think that's something that could, that, you know, that could sink an entire team. All you need is one player getting a false negative um, and getting in that dressing room. And then, you know, that team has to quarantine themselves for two weeks, like we saw with the Miami Marlins. So I hope if there's one thing the NHL took from MLB's debacle, it's the fact that just because a player tests negative two days later doesn't mean that they 
will still test negative four days later or five days later. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely not going to do the full on bubble thing because I don't know if you saw Danny Green after the Lakers won the championship, but he's like skipping down the hallway. We're fucking free. We're fucking free. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't see that, but I like I know like obviously a lot of players absolutely hated it. And I, and one thing that I think really soured the players and I think could make the upcoming negotiations for the next season even more difficult was the family situation, right? Um, once Dallas got to the Stanley Cup final, like they were told that before the playoffs started, you know, uh, players will be allowed to have their families in for the conference finals and the finals. Uh, you know, that never happened. I think it was it was Corey Perry and Jason Dickinson were the only people from the Stars that had family actually get there. And it was because uh, both of them lived within driving distance of Edmonton or something like that. So um, like whatever they do, they're going to have to make sure that players don't lose contact with the team, with their families. But I'm wondering if there's any good, you know, what kind of faith there is between the two, between the NHL and the NHLPA right now. Cause if I'm, a, if I was a player and they told me that I could see my family, if we got to the conference finals or finals, and then I see that, you know, almost nobody was allowed and obviously they wouldn't be allowed. Like, you know, they had the 14 day quarantine in place at the border that's been there for months. Um, seeing what happened there um not to mention all the amenities um that kind of fell through um at the you know on site itself um you know what kind of faith is there between the nhl and the nhl because if i'm the pa i'm looking at the owners and saying you could you know you said you'd have these you know xyz amenities and they weren't there um you said that our families could be in the bubbles with us for the conference finals and finals and they couldn't um you made all these promises to us and you know none of that came true. So why should we take you at your word on these? So uh, like, I think they're going to be contentious negotiations um, whenever the PA and the NHL do sit down. And that's worth noting too. Like, as far as I know, I haven't seen anything. I don't think they've sat down yet to start hashing out the details for the next season. Well, and the CBA that they agreed to before the return to play that they had this summer was supposed to have negotiated all this stuff so now there's all this chatter about teams aren't looking to pay the 72 percent because now it looks like it's going to be an even shorter season than the full season that they were hoping to have and so now teams are like no you don't even get your 72 percent we're going to give you a percentage of that and as a player that would be where my real gripes would come in like yeah you got promised all this stuff but it was all dependent on legislation and directive from the local governments. But this, like the percentage of money that they see, that that's just between the owners and the players and their CBA, it's signed off now. They get whatever percentage of pay they were allotted. Now the owners are looking to claw more of that back. And it's like, what, like, what the hell? Yeah, and like, I'm kind of in the same boat on the season. Like, I don't think there's going to be an 82 game season here either. Um, The fact that they said they're starting January 1st really kind of caught my eye. Like it had me looking at it sideways because I'm thinking, okay, like you're going to have to have your players in to quarantine at least for five or six days or a week, you know, before you get camps going and all that. Um, So you're going to have them quarantine at Christmas away from their families. 
it, it just seems like <laughs> like it it seems like they're gonna make this up as they go along which i hope they don't because that's exactly what happened in baseball but um I don't know. I'll, we'll see what they pull together. Um, I'm just excited for that Canadian division, assuming it actually happens. Yeah, the Canadian division would be absolutely bonkers. Sign me up for the 48-game season where every Canadian team plays each other eight times. And you only play six teams in your season, and every single one of them is a bloodbath by the very end of it. <laughs> Like it, I, I'm just trying to imagine like the, the Oilers and Flames playing each other like five times in three weeks or something like that. Just be like an, it just be an absolute catastrophe. And um, another thing to think about with the NHL coming back is, uh, you know, we saw Eugene Melnick said he wanted to have 6,000 fans or whatever in the stands. Um, you know, we see fans in the stands um, in Tampa Bay for the Buccaneers, uh, you know, in uh, Miami for the Dolphins. Um, we see them at the World Series in Arlington in Texas. So um, that's another thing to think about is, you know, are certain teams going to be able to have fans and certain teams not? And what kind of competitive advantage is that? Um, are the players comfortable playing in front of fans? Because, you know, you're not talking about uh, 10,000 fans in an open air uh, stadium that seats 100,000 people. You know, they're talking about 5,000 people in a closed arena that seats 15,000. So, you know, are the are the players going to be comfortable with that? There's a lot to work out here that, you know, it's not it's not a good. I'm 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 pretty confident they're not going to be starting on January 1st. If they can start by mid-January, I think that should be seen as a success. Just thinking about the indoor environment reminded me of back in the 70s when you were still allowed to smoke in the arenas and stuff like that and there would be like a big blue cloud over the ice and you just think about like a big blue COVID cloud sitting <laughs> over the ice <laughs> guys are trying to play and I, I shouldn't be laughing at that but I I'm, I'm laughing at it yeah well like it's it's a funny image to think about but that's uh, on a serious note that's something that the players have to think about like um there's we're still learning about this we know that being indoors is bad we know being indoors with poor ventilation is worse um what kind of ventilation you know what's the ventilation like in st louis compared to arizona compared to montreal compared to vancouver compared to glendale or compared to you know uh, miami or wherever like you know what i mean and you know our team's going to allow certain teams with fans like i think that's a competitive advantage um, you know, obviously there won't be fans in Canadian teams. Um, so is it fair that, you know, Anaheim and, or I imagine there probably won't be in California either. <laughs> Absolutely not. But is it fair that like Dallas or Nashville would get fans, but Winnipeg or Edmonton wouldn't, you know what I mean? So that's another thing they're going to have to figure out. Like how, how much, how much do they need the money versus how fair do they want to make the games? Like that's a balance that they have to strike. Like there's a lot to hash out here. Well, my sense was that unlike the other big three sports in North America, the NHL, their TV rights deal is absolute dog shit. I pointed this out to a friend of mine the other day, the NHL rights deal, Sportsnet and, and, and NBC combined 
is less than the Los Angeles Dodgers with Fox Sports LA. They're, the NHL, like the entire league sports deal with NBC in America and with Sportsnet in Canada is smaller than the Dodgers in just in Los Angeles. Like it's crazy. There's They need the gate money. And that's why I'm thinking that there's a lot to hash out here as far as allowing fans into the stadiums are, is concerned. Yeah, the NBA is looking to come back because they've already forsaken this coming season in terms of their ability to have fans and stuff like that. They just realized they did not get nearly the type of viewership that they wanted in the summer. And they just want to get back on that calendar that they were on before. They thought, hey, this is a good experiment for us. Everyone's at home. Hopefully we can get a ton of viewership. And they got less than what they normally get throughout the summer. Just because it's the summer. People don't want to watch during that. And then as soon as they got into the finals, but NFL was on and they were getting crushed by the NFL, even though it was like week one and it's the NBA finals. Like they just, they realize they need to get back on the traditional calendar. And so they're just saying this next season, like we were looking at pushing it to March, April, May, something like that to get people in the stands. No, fuck that. We're coming back in December and we're skipping ahead and finishing our season by July because we want to be back on the normal calendar next season where we make the most money and we're just going to tank it in and have enough games that we satisfy our TV rights deals. But the NHL, their TV rights deals are garbage. And I don't even think it's enough to pay for all the testing that they're going to have to do. So I'm way more skeptical about this season coming back than I was about the return to play this past summer. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like, I still think they get back and I still think they get back to play. It's just, I think that January 1st timeline is far too optimistic. Yeah, I think it's just going to keep getting pushed back and pushed back. And a part of me is, I love the NBA and I love the NHL. So if they could not be on the same timeline for once, that would be phenomenal for me so selfishly i'm hoping that the nhl just keeps pushing it until they can have fans in the stands or they decide they just want to have outdoor games so that they can get fans in the stands yeah that's something else that they probably should have looked into is is you know makeshift outdoor rinks you know playing wherever you can um i don't think maybe that's something the players wouldn't want to do because obviously this has to be negotiated by both sides but it is an interesting idea that i think they should at least look into it well i mean it's that or they don't play right right yeah (laughs) that's that's where i'm coming from yeah um but in a more positive spin this offseason has been interesting some players are getting the short end of the stick and they're not getting any money but it seems like well, I mean, no one's spending more money than the Montreal Canadiens. So let's start there. What did you think about the Canadiens offseason thus far? Well, I kind of have mixed emotions about it. Because I'll say this much. There was two, you know, pretty glaring needs for the Habs. If anybody watched them last year, watched them in, in, in the playoffs and that return to play. And it's one was scoring wingers and the other was the power play. Like the power play has just been, it's been bad for like three years now, three or four years. Um, and by bad, I mean like bottom third of the league. Like I think this, I think the 1920 season was actually the best it's been under Claude Julien. It was like 21st in the league or something like that. So they obviously need help on the power play and they obviously need help on the wing. 
Um, they go and trade for Josh Anderson. Like I love Josh Anderson. Like I've been talking about him at Dauber uh, for years. I just love his skill set. Um, you know, I thought the trade for Max Domi, like I like Max Domi a lot as kind of like a playmaking center. Um, but he's a liability defensively. And then when you looked at the wingers, you know, outside the top line past Gallagher and Tatar, like there really wasn't enough to support him. Um, I would have liked to have seen what Domi could do playing with, uh, you know, to Foley and Lekkanen or, or something like that, or to Foley and Byron or something like it would have been interesting to see what he could do with, you know, two good wingers on his wing. Um, but no, he's in Columbus and they have Josh Anderson. Now what Josh Anderson adds, like, He's, he's, a, he's that Tom Wilson type, right? He's the guy that can hopefully score 20, 15 to 20 goals and can also run opponents out of the rink. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a good ad. I'm not a fan of the contract. Um, he's going to be 34 when it runs out, I think. Um, you know, big power forwards tend not to age very well. Um, you know, just think of, of recent examples. A guy like Jamie Benn um, kind of fell off. Um, around 30 years old there are other examples i can't that aren't coming to me off the top of my head but like power forwards tend to fall off in their late 20s harder like playmakers tend to age better age more gracefully um and defensive centers tend to age more gracefully um into their 30s uh, big bodies don't so if if anderson can be the guy of 2018-19 um then that contract and that trade are a home run um if he's not um, he's going to have a tough time living up to it. And I think he'll have to blow it out of the water early on to justify those later years. Cause I think they could hurt him, but like, I don't think adding Anderson adds a ton of scoring. Like, I think he, he, I think he can probably get to 20 goals and they only had two 20 goal scores last year. So that'd be something. Um, but it's a matter of where he slotted in the lineup because they did add Tyler to as well. Um, Toffoli is another guy that I just absolutely love. And I've loved him since he stepped in the league, um, back in Los Angeles. Well, I, I would just say like <coughs> with, with Josh Anderson, it, this seems so much like the David Clarkson contract, except without the home run season in his contract year, but he was able to leverage the situation because, he either wanted a one-year deal and walk me to free agency and maybe he has that Clarkson type deal or type year, or you just hand him the term and he's with you for forever. And like you said, if it works out, then it's great, but it's probably got to work out right away. Cause it doesn't like, they just, they just don't age well. And he's already got the injury woes. So Nathan Horton, David Clarkson, you, you just, you go on and on down the list of the players who they don't live up to their deals once they get into their thirties. And that's got to be scary. Um, I understand why you would add a guy like Anderson to that lineup. And I understand why they would add all the players that they add. Like generally speaking, add good players. You make a good team. I've been reading uh, Brian Burke's book and he in it, he's got like a couple of pages cut out where um, he basically, he runs down a full roster. And this is the template that he put together of what he's looking for on his roster. And every player has got to have like a, a specific skill set and, and role on the team. And the way that Bergevin went about plugging some of the holes on the roster 
just struck me as oh he's 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 trying to build the Burke model like oh he's filling out the depth of the roster so he's he's looking for that pugilist winger and he went out and got Anderson and he's looking for that stout defensive defenseman so he went out and he got Edmondson and he's looking for a guy who could play on the power play so he went out and got to Foley and it just seems like he's trying to plug these specific holes but I don't know if he actually did it in the correct manner yeah and it's when you talk about Anderson um an interesting observation that was pointed out to me on Twitter by uh, I believe it was Rachel Dwery um she used to work for the New Jersey Devils um She's great analytical mind for the game. Um, and she says like players like Anderson are very highly coveted around the league by general managers. You know, think Josh Anderson, think Tom Wilson, think Jamie Ben, think those types of guys. The the big six three, two hundred and thirty pound winger who can score twenty to twenty five goals and also beat the shit out of you. Like those are the guys that she said are highly highly coveted. So. Once they traded for Anderson, it was going to go one of two ways. He was either going to walk his UFA or they were going to bend and, you know, bend the knee and give him the contract that he wanted, which was a long, which was the long-term deal. So, you know, how that works out, um, we'll see. I kind of agree with you that it felt like um, Bergman was piecemealing this team together, like looking for specific players for, to sp- fit specific roles. So like here you have Josh Anderson, he's that big bruising power winger that they've been looking for forever. Um, here's Tyler Toffoli, you know, a guy that can score 30 goals um, that looked great um, playing with an actual playmaking center last year and not being stuck the second and third line in Los Angeles. Um, You know, here's Joel Edmondson, a good, well, what they think is a good or middle pair guy, sorry, um, who can, who probably end up on the bottom pair. And, you know, here's Jake Allen, you know, proven backup goalie who um, can come in and, and be exposed, you know, to this, for Seattle expansion like these are all you're right it it does seem like all these moves were made with a specific kind of player model in mind now when we talk about the and the thing here's the thing now we said that they needed scoring wingers they brought in Josh Anderson Josh Anderson did score 27 goals a couple years ago but generally speaking for his career he hasn't been a high conversion shooter now obviously 2019-20 2019-20 is a big part of that. He only shot like what was like 1.6%. Um, yeah, was he was, I just, he I just, injured. he had that shoulder injury. Yeah, I just wrote off last year because it was the injury. It just, it's a question mark. Yeah, so we're not sure what kind of scoring level Anderson can bring. I think if he gets 20 goals, they'd be happy with that. Uh, Toffoli is where they're hoping all the goal scoring comes from. Now, Toffoli is an interesting guy and I wrote about him um, at Dauber a couple of weeks ago about who he was playing with in Los Angeles. Cause he played largely with Jeff Carter, right? And Jeff mm-hmm. Carter, isn't a typical center. Jeff Carter is not a playmaking center. Jeff Carter is a goal scoring center. Um, those types of centers are pretty rare. Uh, usually it's your center that, that is the distributor and your wingers are the scores, but it was, it, that wasn't the case in Los Angeles. And to Foley himself, isn't a playmaker. He's a goal scorer. So you had, you know, Toffoli, who isn't a good playmaker, playing with Jeff Carter, who isn't a good playmaker. So I wonder about, like, Toffoli's shooting percentages and his upside because, you know, there are a lot of seasons of single-digit shooting percentage, but I'm wondering if that's his true level given who he is playing with. And if he goes and plays with a good playmaker like Phil Deneau or uh, Nick Suzuki, can he shoot 
11, 12, 13% as opposed to 7, 8, 9%. Um, I think he can, and I think that puts 30 goals well within reach. Now, the word, the curious thing here is what they're going to do with their lineup. Um, there is a quote from Claude Julien. I want to say it was last week. Maybe it was two weeks ago, um, like around the middle of October, that he brought up that Tyler Toffoli played left wing when he first got to the Kings back in like 2014 or 2013 or whatever it was. So he can play the left wing if necessary. So it kind of got me thinking, like, are they going to have a, t- like, they already said they're going to leave their normal top line together to Tara, to know Gallagher. So it got me thinking, would the second line be to Foley, Suzuki, Anderson? But I don't think they're going to go that route. I think what you're going to end up seeing is they're going to have their normal top line together, Dano, Tatar, Gallagher. And then you're going to see Drouin play on the second line uh, with Suzuki and Toffoli. And that's going to be kind of like their second scoring line. And I think you're going to see them not get hard matched against top lines. Like you saw Suzuki uh, played quite a bit against top lines in the playoffs last year once the no got moved down the lineup. Um, not quite a bit. He, I should say he played some. Um, but I think they, they want to give those matchups to that Dano line. So I think you're going to see the Dano line eat a lot of the tough matchups. Um, and then you're going to see Drouin with Suzuki um, and Toffoli kind of get softer matchups. And then you're going to have a third line of something like Lekkonen with uh, Kakaniemi and Anderson kind of like a banger, bang, bang slash score third line. Because like when Kakaniemi came back um, – I don't think people realize this. Um, when he came back for the playoffs uh, this year in 2020, he averaged over three hits a game. Like that's that's unbelievable for a guy that's not really playing monster minutes, and a guy that's a forward, and a guy that's a center, and a guy that's I think he's only 20 years old now, just turned 20. So like I think they're gonna use like uh, some sort of Lekkonen, Kokaniemi, Anderson line or Byron Kakaniemi Anderson line as kind of like a banger line. I think you're going to see Drouin with Toffoli and Suzuki as kind of like uh, put them in soft matchups and let them run wild against the other team's bottom six type thing. And then you're going to see Dano and Tatar and Suzuki um, take all the, all the tough matchups. But then that brings into question Josh Anderson's fantasy value Um, because if he's playing, you know, 14, 15, 16 minutes a night on the third line with secondary power play minutes, even though they split the power play. So which unit he's on doesn't really matter. Um, if he's getting, you know, 15, 16 minutes a night as opposed to 17, 18, you know, that it honestly kind of puts 20 goals almost in peril. Like I, I, I'm not, I think Anderson definitely has 20 goal upside. I'm just not going to pencil him in for 20 goals just yet until we see how that lineup shakes out. No doubt. And you talked about Toffoli potentially being the scoring solution for them, but what if what he's done throughout his career is just, it's what he is. He drives play and he isn't a finisher and maybe he actually needs to be playing with a finisher and suddenly this is not the ideal situation for them. And, and they've just added to a lineup of that's desperate for, for finishing and it still doesn't have it. And they're still going to be looking to tee up Shea Weber for one-timers because they still don't have someone who can shoot the damn puck. 
Yeah, and that's why I thought Mike Hoffman would have been a real good choice for them because that guy's a finisher. Uh, that's a guy that you can put on your power play to go get, you know, seven or eight power play goals. That's a guy you can just send out and you know he's going to be good for 25, maybe 30 goals in a regular season. Like, I really thought they, they should have gone after Hoffman. He, and he can play both wings as well. So, like, you know, if they needed him over on the left wing, he can do that. If they needed him over the right wing, he can do that. So, I thought getting Hoffman into Foley probably would have been uh, a better idea, especially once you see Anderson get almost $40 million. Um, but, like, this team's undeniably better now than they were last year. Like, that... Uh, and the thing is, like with the Edmondson contract, like I'm pretty on the record about saying I think that Edmondson contract is just atrocious. Like I think there's a good argument he's not even an NHL caliber player, let alone one worth four years and $14 million. But here's the thing with that blue line now is there's seven defensemen and only two of them are right shots. So Edmondson's going to have a ton of competition to stay in the lineup. Like Sherrod's not coming out of the lineup for sure. And if Romanov can live up to the billing, he's not coming out of the lineup either. So now you're looking at Edmondson, Kulak, and Mete either as, and one of them is going to be scratched. Like one of them's going to be on the third pair, one of them's going to be the 7D, and one of them's going to be scratched or something like that. So I'm not sure how much Edmondson is going to hurt them. I think it'll be pretty evident pretty quick that he's not the guy that they want to use. Um, I think maybe he, like he could, he, he'll probably start on the second pair with Petrie, um, with something like Romanov, Romanov and Kulak on the, on the bottom pair, something like that with Mete in the press box. But I, I don't think it'll be long before Joel Edmondson's down on the third pair or even in the press box himself. Yeah. My concern with adding him was less how he's going to hurt you now. Like wh whatever you, you spend on a guy for one year and that's, that's fine, but you you add term to it, and now suddenly it's really clogging you up. We've seen it with a ton of teams this summer. There's no money to go around. They they'd love to be buying up some of the free agents that are still there, but instead they're spending money on guys who aren't living up to what that contract entails. So if they had him for just one year and he was filling a hole like that, that would that would be perfectly fine. But instead they've got him for term, and now it becomes like it could be. Carl Alsner all over again. I mean, I'm a hundred percent sure it's going to be Carl Alsner all over again. Um, like they're going to have to sit on this for at least two years because I don't think they want Evanson's contract on the books for six. Cause they still have Carl Alsner's on the books for another four. Um, but I think you're going to end up seeing that bought out. And that's, and th it was surprising to me. They made that signing because I knew they were deep down the left side. Like they had Sherratt and Weber. That's going to be their top pair. They had Kulak and Petrie. Like Kulak and Petrie were great together. Whether it was the regular season or the playoffs, that pairing was better than Sherratt Weber. So then you signed Edmondson for three and a half million dollars a season to play on your bottom pair when you have Victor Mete plus Alexander Romanov coming in. Like, it, I, I like, I'm still really confused why they made that signing, and it's not just because I don't think Edmondson is a good player. I think it's because they definitely it was a signing they absolutely did not need to make. They did not need to go sign another left-handed defenseman. Like I said. They have Sherratt on the top pair. They had Kulak on the second pair. And they have Romanov and Mete fighting out for the for the third spot, for the third LD spot on the third pair. Like there was no reason to go inside Edmondson. Like that's even if he even if he's better than I think he is and plays as like a four or five or a six defenseman, 
it's still a waste of money because Mete's no worse than a five or six. Like Romanoff, like if all the hype is true, he's going to be a four as soon as he steps into the league. So why would you go and sign Edmondson for $14 million? It just seemed like a stupid waste of money. And it seemed like, it seemed like Bergevin got way too excited about this team beating the Pittsburgh Penguins in a best of five. Yeah, it just, it struck me as so incongruous with where everything was headed this summer. And players like him, a lot of players like him have not been able to get money or term in this environment. And not only did they give up money and term, but they also gave up a pick just to get him in a house before someone else could go out and trade for him. And frankly, if I found myself in a bidding war for Edmondson services, I would say, good. That means someone else is making a mistake. Yeah, that's why, like, I, that's why I don't get um, why they would go and just spend all that money on Edmondson. You know what I mean? Like, I, I forget what Shagkirk's contract was, but what was Shagkirk? He was three years 3.9 at, for three. Yeah, three at four. I don't, well, let's say four. Three at four million per season. Less term, less money than Joel Edmondson. And Shattenkirk is a puck-moving power play, at worst, a puck-moving third-pair defenseman who just won a Stanley Cup. How in the name of God does Kevin Shattenkirk get less money than Joel Edmondson? And that's and that would have, you know, Shattenkirk's a right-shot defenseman. That would have filled a legitimate hole for the Habs. They need another right-shot defenseman. They only have two of them. So, so that's why, like, that... Edmondson contract is just so weird to me because a they already have they have more depth at left D than they do anywhere else on the roster, especially once you consider Phil Deneau is probably gone after this year. Like they, they, it's their deepest spot of the roster, so it was they made no sense from that perspective. From another perspective, like I said, I don't think Joel Edmondson is an NHL caliber defenseman. From the final perspective, they paid way more for him than other comparable defensemen around the league. So uh, maybe there's some sort of Canadian team tax that they had to pay. Maybe Shad Kirk just refused to come play for a Canadian team. You know, I'm pointing out Shad Kirk. There's, you know, a ton of other defensemen that signed that we could go talk about, you know, like Racco Gudis, even though I don't think Gudis is very good. Um, there are other defensemen we can talk about, but like it, it was just so out of left field because it was, you know, we were seeing a lot of two year, three year deals, two and a half, three, three and a half million that, you know, the fact that, he gets four years and 14 million. It just seemed like it, 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 it was like Bergevin was an 18 year old getting his first credit card. And he's, he's paying those interest payments already. <laughs> yeah, he is. And he's already maxed out. That's, that's a real shame. Um, are there any other teams that have stood out for you as just bungling this off season? Like, I want to know what Nashville's doing. I don't even know if Nashville knows what they're doing. Like I they think they're let, trying to save money. Like they let Craig Smith walk. They let Michael Grandlin walk. They don't like from what I'm reading, it doesn't seem like Ely Tolvanen's any sort of a guarantee to be on the roster at the start of the season. So they're going to go into next year with the second line wingers of Kelly Yarncroc and Rocco Grimaldi. Uh, Colton Sissons and Nick Cousins like what like what's going on here like this is a, like this is a team that went to the cup final a couple years ago 
This is a team that still has Roman Yossi and Ryan Ellis, the best defense pair in hockey. You know, they have Philip Forsberg. They have Victor Arvidsson. They have a pair of wingers who can score 30 goals. And Forsberg's still one of the best, you know, offensive and defensive left wingers in the game. Um, you know, I know their centers, Johansson and Duchesne, kind of underperformed. But to me, going into the season or into this offseason, like they had quite a bit, um, you know, quite a bit going for them. I think John Hines is a terrible hire, and that's probably going to sink the team. But, um, like, I still think that it was a really good roster on paper. Uh, but then you let Smith and Gremlin go. They haven't re-signed, they haven't signed anybody yet. Now, if they go and sign like Mike Hoffman or something, that could change my view. But I don't see how this is anything but a, a disastrous offseason for the Predators. So I liked a couple of things that they did. Their bottom pairing was an absolute disaster for the past, basically since that cup run that you referenced, it's it's been terrible. And they went out and they got Matt Benning and Mark Borieski for really cheap deals and that's going to solidify a third pairing that sucked and it's going to give them a little bit more flexibility so i like what they did there i think letting craig smith walk is disastrous especially when he took a discount to go to boston it seems like and i'm fine with grandland walking because that guy just didn't fit and Apparently they just didn't know how to use him in Nashville. Like Granlund's a weird guy because most of the time you see offensively talented players get this offensive zone push. You want to see them in the offensive zone more, but so much of his best seasons in Minnesota were built off of him starting in the defensive zone. And he was on this line with Jason Zucker where they started most of their shifts playing defense. And then they transitioned really quickly and got all these chances off the rush and that just seemed like absolutely not a fit and not what they were trying to do with him in Nashville. So it just didn't work out at all. So I'm fine with them walking away from him if they're not going to use him that way. Hoffman's a black hole defensively. That, that would be, but he might solve their power play problem because their power play has been god awful. They didn't have a single forever. forward get to 50 points last year either. Yeah, I think that was just injuries, but... Because Forsberg should be getting 60-plus points every year. Yeah, and Arvidsson. Yeah, I, I think the high-water mark for Arvidsson is, is 60 points. But same, same thing, he was injured last year as well. But, yeah, I think they want to have internal growth and oh, yeah, see, they, see what and happens. They, but and I they don't draft, see it. Yeah, and they drafted Askarov, too. And, like, I know everybody – like all the prospect people love Askarov, you know, best goalie to come along in X amount of years or whatever, but they still have UC Saros. They still have Connor Ingram and they use the, what do you go? 13th overall, 14th overall, something like that. Oh, even better. And this is a team that has, you know, Tolvanen is 22 years old now and he's still not a guarantee to make the roster. So now it's starting to, it's fair to wonder if he's going to make it at all. Um, Tomasino looks like he's on his way. So that's going to be a good pickup for them. Um, once he's, once he gets to the, to the roster, but like, honestly, other than Tomasino, there's not much for skating prospects on this team. Like I just, it, I don't know why they decided to go after a goalie 
when they have Saros, when they have Ingram, and when they need skater help now more than they'll need goaltending help in five years or whatever. Like this, I, it just seems like this has been a really, really bad offseason for the Predators. Um, it it kind of seems like they're trying to hit the reset button on the fly um, and then restock for a second run. Um, but that's really tough to do, especially when you don't have a bonafide number one center, which they don't. Um, interesting times in Nashville. We'll see what they we'll see what happens because they still have they still have 13 million in cap space or something like that. So they could still make something happen in the offseason. Yeah, they haven't developed a forward in-house since Kevin Fiala and Victor Arvidsson were drafted in 2014. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> like it's just it's a dead zone for them there, and they've been able to bring along some some good defensemen. Dante Fabro's the next one, and I think uh, David Ference is is coming up. So they they still have that defensive pipeline a little bit, and I don't know. No one's got more equity than David Poyle like the guy's the only GM the team's ever known so they're never going to get rid of him he can basically do whatever he wants and if he thinks that the best move is to get his number one starter for five years down the road and forsake the next couple of seasons then so be it and maybe there's an internal mandate to not spend so much because I don't know Nashville they can't be that lucrative of a team yeah, uh, it, there has to be some sort of internal cap set, you know, 70 million or 72 million or something like that, because there's no reason for this team to let, you know, players the caliber of, of, of Granlin and especially Smith walk, not replace them, and then still hope to contend. Like, it, like I, I, it, it just really does seem they're trying to retool all this on the fly. Um, the problem is that they have 16 million guaranteed between Duchesne and Johansson for the next five years. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not what you want. Um, Cliffy, you got to get out of here, but real quick book club. Wh- what are you reading right now? What's, uh, what's the best thing you've read recently? Um, right now I'm actually reading donut economics by Kate Rayworth. And okay. it- it's it, it's it's not what it sounds like it's it's not about the actual economics of donuts no i've um, heard of this before oh, okay me. yeah it's uh it's just a, a way to rethink our economy and how we need to fit how we need to mold our economy to fit our lives and our world rather than mold our lives and our world to fit our economy so it's like we only have x amount of uh, room left for greenhouse gases we only have this many years left before the acidification of the oceans we only have this many years left uh before you know so many farmlands are arid um how do we you know rethink our economy how do we re- rethink business relationships how do we rethink of our how do we rethink ourselves as people um in a new economy where we have limited natural resources, where we have limited limited public spaces, where we have uh, you know limited governor government investment and things like that, and it's it's just a really fascinating book about thinking differently, because obviously the world that existed in 1950, which is what all our economic basic policies are based on, is not the world we live in in 2020. So and yeah, don't don't economics by Kate Reward. There's uh, there's some good advice in there for the layperson. Yeah, there is like there's there's no there's nothing there's no complex mathematical charts. There's no 
complex diagrams like there are diagrams but they're all you know with like 10 at the most 10 things labeled in a circle or something like that like it's very very straightforward and it gives a good background uh on the historical context of uh modern western economies and how we got to be the way they are and things like that so it does a good job of setting the table before it dives into its subject matter are the diagrams diagrams of donuts one of them is yes <laughs> uh, i'm pretty sure i heard a podcast on this on maybe it was freakonomics or maybe it was radio lab or something like that it yeah she was on freakonomics there you go so it, it it barely left an imprint on me so i might have to read the book now that uh, that has left me super intrigued like i mentioned uh i've been reading brian burke's book burke's law and i mean i i know the guy's pretty divisive but just in terms of who he is and what he's about you can you could dislike some of his hockey takes and stuff like that but just his principles on life and his discipline there's there's a lot to be gleaned from that yeah that's a book that i i want to get to like I'm, <laughs> i have so many books i got to read but that's what i want to get to because like like you said whether he like there's a lot of stuff i don't agree with him on but he's still he's an interesting guy and he's led an interesting life in the game of hockey so um it definitely be something very interesting worth reading and uh i just want to plug one book that i'm going to start after i'm finished this donut economics one and it's called we promised you a great main event by bill handstock um and it's it's the unauthorized biography of wwe so he talks to former employees former you know arena managers former talent etc cetera, etc cetera, about the rise of wwe through the 80s and 90s and i just can't wait to dig into it I mean, the the number of stories that one has to tell about wrestling, you you could fill an encyclopedia. Yeah, exactly. This this isn't a small book either. Like it's like a five hundred page book. So, I'm I'm excited to dig in. Uh, right on, um, Cliffy. You gotta go. We'll find your stuff on awesomeo.com for DFS and dauberhockey.com for general fantasy hockey anything else you'd like to plug no that'll be it for right now just uh if anybody's into season-long fantasy hockey um dauber hockey does have a season-long fantasy guide that goes out on october 30th so come support what we do at dauber hockey by picking up a, uh, uh your fantasy hockey guide all right thanks so much for coming on Cliffy. all right thanks a lot steve take her easy all right everyone that is our show as cliffy mentioned the Dauber Hockey Fantasy Hockey Guide for the upcoming season is out now. So pick that up at DauberHockey.com. Thanks to Michael Clifford for coming on the podcast. Thanks to you for tuning in. That's the show. We'll chat with you next time.